0: The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson Chapter 27. Conclusion I put down the manuscript and glanced across at Tonneson. He was sitting, staring out into the dark. I waited a minute, then I spoke. Well, I said. He turned slowly and looked at me. His thoughts seemed to have gone out of him into a great distance. Was he mad, I asked, and indicated the manuscript with a half-nod. Tonneson stared at me unseeingly a moment, then his wits came back to him and suddenly he comprehended my question. "'No,' he said. I opened my lips to offer a contradictory opinion, for my sense of the sameness of things would not allow me to take the story literally. Then I shut them again without saying anything. Somehow the certainty in Tonneson's voice affected my doubts. I felt all at once less assured, though I was by no means convinced as yet.' After a few moments' silence, Tonnison rose stiffly and began to undress. He seemed disinclined to talk, so I said nothing but followed his example. I was weary, though still full of the story I had just read. Somehow, as I rolled into my blankets, there crept into my mind a memory of the old gardens as we had seen them. I remembered the odd fear that the place had conjured up in our hearts, and it grew upon me with conviction that Tonneson was right. It was very late when we rose, nearly midday, for the greater part of the night had been spent in reading the manuscript. Tonnison was grumpy and I felt out of sorts. It was a somewhat dismal day and there was a touch of chilliness in the air. There was no mention of going out fishing on either of our parts. We got dinner and after that just sat and smoked in silence. Presently Tonneson asked for the manuscript. I handed it to him and he spent most of the afternoon in reading it through by himself. It was while he was thus employed that a thought came to me. What do you say to having another look at... I nodded my head downstream. Tonneson looked up. Nothing, he said abruptly, and somehow I was less annoyed than relieved at his answer. After that, I left him alone. A little before tea time, he looked up at me curiously. Sorry, old chap, if I was a bit short with you just now. Just now, indeed. He had not spoken for the last three hours. "'But I would not go there again,' and he indicated with his head, "'for anything that you could offer me. Ah! "'And he put down that history of a man's terror and hope and despair. "'The next morning we rose early and went for our accustomed swim. "'We had partly shaken off the depression of the previous day "'and so took our rods when we had finished breakfast "'and spent the day at our favorite sport. "'After that day we enjoyed our holiday to the utmost, "'though both of us looked forward to the time when our driver should come.' for we were tremendously anxious to inquire of him, and through him among the people of the tiny hamlet, whether any of them could give us information about that strange garden lying away by itself in the heart of an almost unknown tract of country. At last the day came on which we expected the driver to come across for us. He arrived early while we were still abed, and the first thing we knew he was at the opening of the tent inquiring whether we had had good sport. We replied in the affirmative and then both together almost in the same breath, we asked the question that was uppermost in our minds. Did he know anything about an old garden and a great pit and a lake situated some miles away down the river? Also, had he ever heard of a great house thereabouts? No, he did not and had not, yet, stay, he had heard a rumor once upon a time of a great old house standing alone out in the wilderness, but if he remembered rightly, it was a place given over to the fairies, or if that had not been so, he was certain that there had been something queer about it. And anyway, he had heard nothing of it for a very long while, not since he was quite a gassoon. No, he could not remember anything particular about it. Indeed, he did not know he remembered anything at all, at all, until we questioned him. Look here, said Tonneson, finding that this was about all that he could tell us. Just take a walk round the village while we dress, and find out something if you can. With a nondescript salute, the man departed on his errand while we made haste to get into our clothes, after which we began to prepare breakfast. We were just sitting down to it when he returned. "'They're all in bed, the lazy devils are, sir,' he said with a repetition of the salute and an appreciative eye to the good things spread out on our provision chest which we utilized as a table. "'Oh, well, sit down,' replied my friend, "'and have something to eat with us,' which the man did without delay. After breakfast, Tonnison sent him off again on the same errand while we sat and smoked. He was away some three-quarters of an hour, and when he returned it was evident that he had found out something.' It appeared that he had gotten into conversation with an ancient man of the village who probably knew more, though it was little enough, of the strange house than any other person living. The substance of this knowledge was that in the ancient man's youth, and goodness knows how long back that was, there had stood a great house in the center of the gardens where now was left only that fragment of ruin. This house had been empty for a great while, years before his, the ancient man's, birth. It was a place shunned by the people of the village as it had been shunned by their fathers before them. There were many things said about it, and all were of evil. No one ever went near it, either by day or night. In the village it was a synonym of all that is unholy and dreadful. And then one day a man, a stranger, had ridden through the village and turned off down the river in the direction of the house as it was always termed by the villagers. Some hours afterward he had ridden back, taking the track by which he had come towards Ardrahan. Then for three months or so, nothing was heard. At the end of that time, he reappeared, but now he was accompanied by an elderly woman and a large number of donkeys laden with various articles. They had passed through the village without stopping and gone straight down the bank of the river in the direction of the house. Since that time, no one, save the man whom they had chartered to bring over monthly supplies of necessaries from Arjahan, had ever seen either of them, and him none had ever induced to talk. Evidently, he had been well paid for his trouble. The years had moved onward, uneventfully enough in that little hamlet, the man making his monthly journeys regularly. One day he had appeared as usual on his customary errand. He had passed through the village without exchanging more than a surly nod with the inhabitants and gone on toward the house. Usually it was evening before he made the return journey. On this occasion, however, he had reappeared in the village a few hours later in an extraordinary state of excitement, and with the astounding information that the house— had disappeared bodily and that a stupendous pit now yawned in the place where it had stood. This news, it appears, so excited the curiosity of the villagers that they overcame their fears and marched en Moss to the place. There they found everything just as described by the carrier. This was all that we could learn. Of the author of the manuscript, who he was and whence he came, we shall never know. His identity is, as he seems to have desired, buried forever. That same day, we left the lonely village of Crichton. We have never been there since. Sometimes, in my dreams, I see that enormous pit, surrounded as it is on all sides by wild trees and bushes, and the noise of the water rises upward and blends in my sleep with other and lower noises, while over all hangs the eternal shroud of spray. Grief Footnote 17 These stanzas I found in pencil upon a piece of fool's cap gummed in behind the fly-leaf of the manuscript. They have all the appearance of having been written at an earlier date than the manuscript. Fierce hunger reigns within my breast. I had not dreamt that this whole world, crushed in the hand of God, could yield such bitter essence of unrest, such pain as sorrow now hath hurled out of its dreadful heart unsealed. Each sobbing breath is but a cry. My heart-strokes knells of agony and my whole brain has but one thought, that never more through life shall I, save in the ache of memory, touch hands with thee who now art not. Through the whole void of night I search, so dumbly crying out to thee, but thou art not, and night's vast throne becomes an all-stupendous church with star-bells knelling unto me, who in all space am most alone. And hungered to the shore I creep, Perchance some comfort waits on me from the old sea's eternal heart. But lo, from all the solemn, deep, far voices out of mystery seem questioning why we are apart. Where'er I go, I am alone, who once through thee had all the world. My breast is one whole raging pain, for that which was and now is flown into the blank where life is hurled, where all is not, nor is again.